We met here for the purpose of worship. Certainly worship consists of a lot of things, not the least of which is uh, prayer. So I would remind you, to hey, we do have a prayer list over here to my left. It has a number of uh, folks on there that are in need of your intercessory prayer. So please get you a copy and use it as appropriate. And then, uh, of course... <clears throat> I want to start this morning, as I have done the last several Sundays, with a time of silent prayer. And you think about the things that uh, you think uh, God needs to do. And I would recommend, certainly pray for our nation, that we would have a spiritual revival. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being able to come together and to worship. Now I would ask a very special blessing upon our country. And then I would also ask, Father, that you would guide us today as we worship. That it would be in a manner pleasing in your sight. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, now let's move to uh, announcements. we I'm going to call off Wednesday night since the fact that uh, my daughter and grandson are going to be coming the next day. And uh, it would probably be appropriate that we not have church on Wednesday. But we will resume the next Wednesday, 6.30 Bible study. And and then, of course, after that, 7 o'clock roughly, our Bible, excuse me, prayer meeting, 6.30, then Bible study at 7. So that uh, will be our our plan. Of course, we will have church on Sunday as usual. Uh, now, as far as the aspects of worship go, we have one called giving. Uh, I always remember somebody, one of the preachers told me, a preacher told me, he forgot to have any offering taken up one Sunday, and so he was a Baptist preacher, so he's stands at the back of the church so everybody can tell him what a great job he did. And uh, he said he was standing at the back of the church and an older fellow came back there and said, you know, you forgot something today. And he said, what was that? I didn't have an opportunity to give. And that's important to me. Well, I don't suspect he had maybe the knowledge that we have in this church that giving isn't part of worship. But uh, certainly, uh, it's true. It's as much a part of worship as prayer, as the teaching of the Word, singing, etc. So, uh, I want to turn on the chart. I bet you have the chart memorized by now, but they got the two verses that summarize New Testament giving. One says, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. And that's in... 2 Corinthians 8, 12. Uh, And to me, that means you can give in the privacy of your mind whether you have anything to give or not. 
and we'll have a moment of silent prayer, and you can give as appropriate. But then again, Second Corinthians nine seven gives indication that every man, according as he purpose in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And I think that means that if you have something to give because God has blessed you, don't do it unless you can do it cheerfully. So with that said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Tommy, please. Father, thank you for the opportunity to give. Now, I would ask a very special blessing upon both the gift and the giver, and that you would continue to guide and direct us throughout this worship service. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, we are going to have uh, music now again from our box of chocolates over here, and we have a doubly appropriate song the Holy City, not only because it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ returning, but we're also talking probably today about the millennium. So, Kenneth, if you would, let's see what that box of chocolate has to offer for us.
Thank you, Emily. All right, this morning we're going to continue our study in the doctrine of dispensation. We are getting, of course, to the end of the dispensation, so I would call your attention to the second advent of Christ, as you can see on the chart. Uh, And, of course, uh, the things we're going to talk about today uh, will begin with explaining the battles of Armageddon, kind of a way of review. And then we will hopefully get into the millennium, and I'm hoping we will finish the millennium. By that I mean the lesson about the millennium. But before I start, I want to just simply tell you, give credit to many people who have written books, creditable books, uh, about eschatology. And I thought I would just give them credit, like there is a book entitled The Nations by John Walvert. I will put these, by the way, on the internet. Uh, The Nations by John Walvert, then Prophecy Today by Dwight L. Pentecost, The Basis of Pre-Mill Faith by... Dr. Ryrie. Uh, then there's a book on, of, entitled Revelation by John Walvoord. And then The Footsteps of the Messiah by Frankton, Fruchtenbaum. And then there's A Road to Armageddon by three people, Chuck Swindoll, John Walvoord, and Pentecost both contribute chapters there. And then there is, uh, the, the, the Millennial Kingdom, which is probably the <clears throat> best book if you're looking for scriptures that are used about the millennium. It's about that thick by John Walford. And then, of course, you have the doctoral dis- dissertation of Dwight L. Pentecost entitled Things to Come, of which he certainly covers the millennium as, we're, as well as other eschatological matters. Uh, and then uh, Hal Lindsey does a good job of a book entitled There's a New World Coming. So, uh, so much for crediting so many people that I have been privileged to read and uh, come up with. Uh, and then, of course, the Bible, uh, which is the ultimate uh, authority. So, uh, our chart, we're being, we're going to be looking at, uh, ending the Armageddon campaign, and then getting into the millennium. All right, before we do, though, let's use 1 John 1, 9, as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to study your word. Our guide and direct us as we do want to study to show ourselves approved unto you, workmen who need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to ask us to move to page three. Most of what I have written on pages one and two represent a review, and then we'll go into the campaigns of Armageddon, and I'm going to put another chart up there that shows the various uh, armies that arrive at Armageddon. You know, the word Armageddon is usually thought to be one uh, battle, but actually it's a series of campaigns. So when you see it used, you should understand it's talking about a series of campaigns rather than one battle of Armageddon. All right, we'll get to that chart shortly. <clears throat> but keep in mind, the rapture of the church occurs. And then we have seven years of tribulation, which is a time of Jacob's trouble. And it consists of two time periods, 1,260 days each. Thus the seven years using the Jewish calendar. And during the first three years, three and a half years, uh, it's called uh, by Colonel R.B. Thiem uh, as uh, Satan's failed utopia. 
utopia. And then the last three and a half years, it's called the Great Tribulation, where a lot of bad things happen. So we've covered that, and I'll get a brief review for you on pages one and two. And uh, at the end of the Tribulation period, which ends with the second coming of Jesus Christ, uh, then we have, of course, the, the millennium is established. But now we're talking about that last battle of the campaign of Armageddon, uh, which is what our lesson will begin on page three under the heading, The Campaigns of Armageddon. So here we go. Just as God has used invading armies to punish disobedient Israel in the past, so the king of the north appears during the tribulation to ravage the land and destroy its people. But his invasion of Israel assures his own destruction. Daniel writes of the campaign in a great deal of detail in Daniel eleven thirty-seven through 45. So we know that there are armies that arrive in the valley of Megiddo, uh, in the valley of Jezreel, as it's also called, at the city of Megiddo. And uh, you, we talked about the various armies that come. You have, of course, the whole thing begins with the what is called the King of the South, which is a Pan-Arabic block that uh, decides they're going to go on up through Gaza and attack Israel, and that they do. Uh, however, this excites the King of the North, which uh, some of our great expositors uh, using the the original language as well as various scriptures found in the Old Testament see that as southern part of Russia. Uh, they don't like the idea of the Panabric block coming up from the south, so they move back or move south themselves uh, down into Israel. So Israel is ravaged not only by the Panarabic block, but then by the king of the north. And then the king of the north even sweeps on down into Egypt where he uh, uh, takes over Egypt. But then he hears of a problem, actually two problems. He first hears of someone coming from Europe, the king of the west, which would be the Antichrist and his forces. Now you got to remember during the tribulation, as we've earlier studied, uh, the Antichrist says, I don't want any more religion, and that includes the giant religion the giant uh, uh, Roman ruler who is a religion, religious uh, leader in a giant, very wealthy church in Rome. And uh, the Antichrist says, I don't want any religion, period. So he ex- executes him. And then he also uh, tells Israel, I won't let you use the temple anymore. There's going to be no religion. So it, all of that is building up to what we see on our chart there. And so coming across the Mediterranean Sea is a, a naval uh, armada, uh, which is the Antichrist himself. And uh, uh, the kings, the two kings who are fighting there in Israel, one another as well as Israel, uh, they... Uh, are frightened because what's happening? You know, here comes a king across the Mediterranean Sea, and then all of a sudden they hear of a giant army coming from the east, an Oriental army, vast numbers of people. So all of them arrive at that uh, Megiddo, or the, or, and uh, it's there that the Antichrist uses his capabilities because he's also demon possessed to be able to convince everybody that uh, uh, there is a, a way we can handle this situation. Because first of all, he says, I want to dispatch a group down to Israel to uh, destroy Israel. And then he decides, well, in addition to that, we'll just wait right here because I tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back and he's coming back right here. And so we want to be here to kill him when he arrives. So uh, that's the plan, but uh, the Lord Jesus Christ does come back, but he doesn't uh, give them, as they say, the time of day. Instead, he destroys all of them, and uh, they're all killed. And he then invites all the birds, flesh-eating birds of the world to come and clean up the carnage so that he can set up his kingdom in the millennium. 
So now then I have given you an overview. Now let's go to the heading, the campaigns of Armageddon. Here we go. Just as God has used invading armies to punish disobedient Israel in the past, so the king of the north appears during the tribulation to ravage the land and destroy its people. But his invasion of Israel assures his own destruction. And again, Daniel writes about that. Now point two. These Arab nations are led by a man called elsewhere in Scripture, the king of the south, by his military might, he will attempt to take over Israel. With mechanized infantry, he will start to move his forces overland through Gaza and into Israel. This political and military indiscretion will precipitate a response from the Soviet Union. The leader of the Soviet forces is called elsewhere in Scripture, the King of the North. The King of the North will storm out against the Pan-Arabic coalition with infantry, armor, air, and sea power. From the Bosphorus, he will come or will come, a naval force, and from the area west of the Caspian Sea will come a large contingent of armor and infantry uh, with tactical fighter support. The Lord Jesus Christ with his angelic army will descend from the heavens with the fury. Christ will destroy the armies of the world and the remnant of Israel will be delivered. Now all of this assumes, uh, pause for a moment, all of this assumes uh, that things happen pretty quickly. Uh, because all, since we don't know when the rapture is going to occur, it could occur 2,000 years from now. So our, our little uh, uh, exercise here and, uh, that, and many, many others who have come up with the, uh, what if, you know, it happens right away. Here's what would happen because here are the names of the countries that exist today. Now what their names will be later, 2,000 years from now or 1,000 years from now or 500 years from now or tomorrow... Uh, of course, will be up to the time of the time. In other words, the times at that time. Now let's go to point six. In the history of Jerusalem, there have been many sieges of the holy city. Prominent is the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebuchadnezzar, and to Rome. Yet to come is the siege at the end of the tribulation. The last battle of Armageddon uh, occurs in the closing days of the tribulation prior to the premillennial return of Christ, thus fulfilling the promises of the four unconditional covenants, the Abrahamic, the Palestinian, the Davidic, and the New. So Zechariah in chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, and Zechariah 14, 1 through 5, describe the victory of our Lord over the Antichrist's forces. Now let's talk about the deliverance of the saints the largest and arguably the best trained army in all human history might have ruled the world but for one detail, the intervention of Jesus Christ. No man or group of people can progress further than God allows. No army advances once God calls a heart, calls a halt. Jesus Christ controls history, past, present, and future. Everyone will be able to see Jesus Christ as he comes out of heaven His divine essence is the light of the world, the only light which can penetrate the abysmal darkness, even as he is the only light who can penetrate the darkness of the human soul lost in sin. The earlier stated paradigm of the Lord doing battle for Israel refers to his actions at the end, end, action at the cul-de-sac of the Red Sea. The Jews of the Exodus generation were hopelessly trapped with the Red Sea in front of them, the mountains uh, to the side, and the Egyptian army in rapid pursuit. So the Israelites panicked. Then Moses shouted, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. As they quieted down, they beheld the miracle of the sea opening up before them to let them pass through dry shod, and then they watched the waters return and drown the Egyptians. Grace was the principle of deliverance then as it will be in the future. Grace depends entirely on who and what the Lord is. As divine intervention won the day for the Jews in the past, so grace wins the day in that future siege. One of the last appearances of vengeance is recorded in Isaiah 63, 1, when he disciplines Jordan, that is the nation Jordan, for not supporting Israel during the 586 B.C. siege. And I'm going to read you there, and I've also put you a map there of Jordan. 
and you can see where Bozrah is. Alright, here it is. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, <clears throat> and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger. This is talking, Christ talking now. And trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. And I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart. And the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine arm brought salvation unto me. And my fury, it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury. And I will bring down their strength to the earth. So that is what the, I, I like to think the last thing the Lord does is He has to go punish Jordan for what they did uh, in 586 or so. Alright, as the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth in glory, the first place His foot touches is the Mount of Olives. The personal presence of the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, the personal presence of the Lord on the Mount of Olives converts this obstacle into a portal of refuge. The Lord splits the mount and through the valley will move the believing remnant of Israel. So that is their way of escape as they move east out of the city. So just as the Exodus generation passed through the Red Sea to safety, so the future generation surviving the tribulation will pass through the valley east of the city. After the tribulation, the Lord prepares planet earth for implementation of a thousand years of perfect environment and the millennium. Now let's go to part five of our study of dispensations, uh, the millennium. All right, many Old Testament and New Testament passages combine to teach that Christ will be the supreme ruler of the earth in an age called by many the age of Christ or the millennium. The apocalypse, as you might imagine, speaks to the subject in several places. For example, Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 11 is a good summary. And I'm going to read. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. All right, let me stop there for a minute. Satan is chained during the first part of the tribulation to begin the tribulation, I'm sorry, the millennium, and he will stay in chains until at the very end of the the uh, millennium, he will go about and convince certain people they can still kill Christ. Remember, people going into the millennium will be all believers to begin with. However, there will be children born in the millennium. Some of them will not believe. And so those are the ones who will be convinced at the end of the tribulation when Satan is loosed and that they can still handle this guy, Jesus. So they go march toward his holy city and he speaks their death. Uh, and then they, of course, we have the great white throne, destruction of earth first, then the great white throne, and uh, then we have eternity future. All right, and I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with them a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan will be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle 
the number of whom is at, as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne to him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. That would be Jesus Christ who sits on the great white throne and he judges men and women based upon their works. What they did in order to make themselves right with God. Sin is no longer mentioned because Christ took care of all sin on the cross. Now, I gave you a couple of charts that you have seen before, and I thought they would be appropriate because in chart form they explain much of what I have just said. The rejection of Christ results in the postponement of the kingdom that God was offering to Israel. And then we, of course, have the, the church age and the tribulation and the millennium. And then a little larger chart for those of you who may uh, have a little bit of trouble with the first one. It's pretty clear on the second. The series of events called the various dispensations. Alright, in Daniel 12 too, the two resurrections are also mentioned in connection with the resurrection of Israel to judgment at the second advent. When some are cast into the lake of fire and some are brought forward to live and reign with Christ in the millennium. For example, in a message to Israel, you can see Daniel 12, 2 makes a distinction between believing Israel and unbelieving Israel. He says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Then we have a chart of the resurrections. Christ, of course, has his resurrection body. Then the church gets its resurrection body at the rapture. And then the tribulation and Old Testament saints that... Uh, are going to move into the millennium, they will get a not a resurrection body, but they will get a body which is capable of living in perfect environment and also capable of having children. Remember, in a resurrection body, you don't procreate. So that's why we know there was no uh, rapture given to the tribulation and Old Testament saints that move into the millennium. So what happens? Do they get one? Yes, at the end of the millennium. All right, and then we have eternity future. Now let's go to point two. During the millennium, Christ as David's son will sit on the throne of David and David will serve as Christ's executive officer. This is the the implementation of the Davidic covenant, which is one of the four. Notice Jeremiah 39, 30.9, excuse me, 30 verse 9. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then Ezekiel 34:23 and 24. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Then Ezekiel 37, 24 and 25. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Then Hosea 3, 5, Afterward the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. So God's faithfulness to perform what He has promised to David and believing Israel is emphasized in Jeremiah 33, 20 and 21. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant with covenant with David my servant and my covenant with the Levites who are priests ministering before me can be broken and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. So that's a way of saying it's going to happen unless, of course, you can do those things that you obviously cannot. So it's a sure thing. All right, Israel's boundaries will be extensive far beyond the boundaries of any prior kingdom of David and it will be a forever kingdom. And I've shown you a chart of what they will have and how vast it is and how 
how Israel has never had it. So it's a promise that needs to to be completed. And it will be, of course, uh, as you know. All right, now let's go to Genesis fifteen eighteen through 21. And that's in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Avram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. From the, and this is going to describe, by the way, the land that they will get. And I've shown you a map after taking a look at each and every one of the settlements of these people listed and putting them in map form. And you remember how vast it is. It takes up most of Turkey. It goes all the way down, takes in most of Saudi Arabia. It comes over and takes of the New East, you know, like the Iraq and Iran and so forth. And uh, even as far as the, the, the river that separates India from the Middle East. So uh, we've seen that before. But list, I'll list these people for you since they're here in Scripture. Uh, in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Avram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt. So they get a great big hunk of Egypt, which of course is the Nile, under the great river, the river Euphrates, which is what flows out of the Persian Gulf, uh, becoming the Tigris and the Euphrates later. And then it tells you about the people that were living uh, in Cana, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now let's look at Daniel 2, 44 and 45. In the time of those kings, talking about the kings that will be there, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. A reference for those of you who attended Wednesday night service. We went over the great statue and we went over the things that uh, Daniel explained in terms of the meaning of his head, his arms, his waist, etc. And then it goes on to say, this is the meaning of the vision of the rock. That's the rock that rolls down the hill and strikes the great big giant. And by the way, I have a couple of pictures of that uh, giant over here to my left, uh, which I have borrowed from somebody. I can't remember who I borrowed it from, but uh, nonetheless, it shows you the great giant statue made of gold. So in the meaning of the, this is the meaning of the vision of the rock. Jesus is the rock. Cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. Uh, the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. So that's chapter 2. And then in chapter 4, we have, of course, even more information about the great big giant gold statue. And uh, in addition, uh, it tells us about how Old uh, Nebuchadnezzar became a believer because of what Daniel said to him. And that's in chapter 4. And you say, well, what happened in chapter 3? Well, you have to jump from 2 to 4 to get any continuity because 3 is about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when another king was was there. And they went into the fiery furnace, you'll remember. But uh, not unusual in Scripture to have to be a detective in order to get meaning. And that's what pastor teachers should do. Alright, now Christ's reign will be a universal rule. Micah, beginning in chapter 4, reading verses 1 and 2 of that fourth chapter, says, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. And this, of course, is a message, uh, as it goes on to say, the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Uh, this is a reference to teach uh, that there will be positive volition for believers and the unbelievers who are not uh, demonstrating positive volition. Uh, they will be permitted to live so long as they don't mess up perfect environment. Uh, and that's when the Lord will execute will execute them by capital punishment. Uh, and there will be capital punishment. There will be number one volition in the millennium. There will be capital punishment for those who commit such a sin that it messes up perfect environment. Then pew, the Lord kills them. Now, another point here that probably needs to be made. The millennium is important not only because it's in the Bible and you need to know about it, but number two, it also tells us about perfect environment. 
what is perfect environment? Perfect environment is a place where you have capital punishment. Perfect environment is a place where you have... Uh, uh, everyone knows about the Lord. His knowledge will be universal everywhere. And, uh, and the, all physical things will be perfect. You know, the physical uh, conditions in the earth. But uh, just a point to keep in mind when you study the millennium. Uh, it has another meaning other than just you ought to know it because it's in the Bible. Alright, so Christ will rule with a rod of iron and absolute power. There will be absolute power in perfect environment. Nobody will mess with anybody because Christ will execute and demonstrate that perfect power is absolute power if the one exercising the power is perfect. And certainly Christ is just that. Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. For example, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with iron and iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So that's talking about what Christ does in the millennium. It's not talking about this used to be as a clarion call for missionaries to say Christ will do this for you missionaries. Get out there and be a missionary. It's out of context. That's talking about what Christ will do in the millennium. Now let's go to Revelation 19.15. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. That's Jesus Christ with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So all who oppose him will be punished. Christ's government will be one of righteousness and peace. Uh, then that, that can we find that in Isaiah 11, 2, 3, and 4. And I'll read, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears from his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike down the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Alright, these unusual characteristics are made possible in part because Satan is bound and rendered inoperative at least up until the very last days of the millennium. The only source of evil in the world will be the sin nature residing in unbelievers. Alright, and then I'm going to read again for you Revelation 20. Verses 1 through 3, though we have read it today, says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he might be loosed a little season. All right, the millennium will begin with believing adults transformed by the application of the new covenant. And what is the new covenant? Well, one of the four unconditional covenants. And that's where uh, people are changed who go into the millennium. They are given a new nature. They are given a new heart, if you will. And uh, they will show the rest of the world, for example, speaking of more particularly of Israel, how... Uh, they have kept the law, will keep the law, can keep the law. That's the new covenant. It's not like the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which said, if you do this, I'll do that. If you do that, I'll do this. No, this is, I'm going to do it, period. That's it. You understand? Uh, and that's how the Lord speaks. The new covenant, they'll be changed. That is, the believers will be changed. Particularly, it's a reference to Israel. Because the four covenants are really for Israel. We just happen to be lucky to get to grab them by the coattail and follow them where they're going. All right, children who are born during the age of Christ will be subject to the righteous rule of Christ. Many will not believe, and if deemed appropriate by Christ, they may even be executed. Such capital punishment will be summarily executed by Christ if their manifest sin or evil adversely affects perfect environment. Volition will remain a divine institution, and some number of projects will reject the Christ. The unbelieving ilk will produce both sin and evil. Open sin and evil will be punished. No one will be permitted to disrupt perfect environment. All right, Zechariah 14, 16, and 17. 
Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And I talked uh, Wednesday night about tabernacles just as an aside. The Feast of Tabernacles is to teach that the Lord will come back at the second advent and live on planet earth. And so therefore those who celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles build a little lean tune, a little uh, lean uh, uh, tooth, or, uh, <laughs> now there's two, four poles or something over it. And it's done very often in New York City. You'll see up a little walk-up apartment area. They'll go out on the porch and build a little place to uh, stay under to celebrate the Lord living with them during the millennium. Uh, that's what it teaches. Feast of Tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, will, they will have no rain. Let's say Egypt passes a law and says, no one is permitted to go up to the Feast of the Tabernacles. Well, they won't get any rain. They may get something else too, by the way. But the point is, this is what the Scripture said. In other words, they'll be punished. Alright, but the righteous will... He, I'm not going to Isaiah now 11.4. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. So Israel will enjoy a place of privilege and special blessing as God's priest nation. Many passages bear on this subject. In the millennium, the Israelites will be regathered and restored to the promised land. They are not restored now, though they may and many will teach, unfortunately, that this is their promised land and this has been fulfilled. No, sir. Not according to what the Word of God has to say. Uh, that little portion, you know, Israel's about, I'm talking about on the map now, Israel's about that much. And, uh, that's all they've got. And they're surrounded by 50 million Arabs. And the Arabs are about that much. But in the millennium, we've seen what Israel gets. Land that they had never gotten before. So don't be fooled by some of these internet folks. Alright, many passages bear on this subject. In the millennium, the Israelites will be regathered and restored to their promised land. Jeremiah 30 verse 3, The days are coming, declares the Lord. Well, I'll bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and to restore them to the land I gave their forefathers. All right, now then it goes on in Jeremiah 31, 8. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throne will return. They will come with weeping. They will... Pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside the streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, it's my personal opinion, though I have no scripture to document this, therefore just count it as my personal opinion, that when the lame and the blind and the hawk return to go into the millennium, Christ will heal them. I just think that follows logically. It's all it is, is logic. Now let's go to Ezekiel because it's perfect environment for believers. All right, uh, Ezekiel 39 and 25. It's also, by the way, perfect environment for the unbeliever as long as he acts correctly and properly. All right, now let's look at Ezekiel 39, 25 through 28. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will now bring Jacob back from captivity and will have compassion, again, supporting my personal opinion, on all the people of Israel and I will be zealous for my holy name. They will forget their shame and all unfaithfulness they showed toward me when they lived in safety in their land with no one to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the nations and have gathered them from the countries of their enemies, I will show myself holy through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God, for though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. And then old Amos, chapter 9, verses 10, then dropping down to verse 14. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it is used to be, where, the way it used to be. And I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. 
So the people of Israel will be subject to King Jesus. Notice Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. All right, now let's go to Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And then in Romans chapter 9 verse 4 reading through verse 13 as we'll drop down to 13. Who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? Not as though the word of God had taken none effect for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. In other words, not all Israel is true Israel. And that's made clear in Scripture uh, that there will be those who are Jews who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. But true Israel is a Jew who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's no longer a Jew. He is one in Christ, just as we we learned when we studied the book of Galatians. Now let's go on to verse, verse 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Now as it is written, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. You couldn't get two more Jews than those two Jews who were born at the same time, twins, Jacob and Esau. And yet Esau, God hates, Jacob he loves. Why is that? Because Jacob was a believer. Esau was not a believer. And as an unbeliever, he was hated of God. And uh, and he makes that point that not all Israel is Israel, but only believing Israel is Israel. All right, then we have in 11.1 in Romans, I say then, hath God cast away his people? Of course, the answer there is no. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And of course, you have to look and see who is Israel there, and it's believing Israel. You can't take it out of context as some have. All right, Israel have, will have title to their land, even as the Gentiles received abundant blessings in their lands. Isaiah 19:23. Then dropping down to verse 25. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt, and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Now let's continue in the book of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 49, reading verses 5, 6, and 7. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength he says it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth this is what the Lord says the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel to him who has uh, again, despised and abhorred, uh, who was despised and abhorred by the nations to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel has, who has chosen you. All right, now with reference to uh, the uh, millennium, uh, there are those who would say, well, how about Revelation chapters or, uh, 21 and 22, those chapters that uh, 
What are they about? Well, the last two chapters, let's just say, the last two chapters of the book of the Revelation uh, refer to the millennium. And they also, I'm I'm sorry, refer to uh, the the, uh, New Jerusalem, just as we heard on the the, the, uh, chocolate box over here, uh, and uh, how people will live there. Uh, So it's not a description of heaven in my view. It's not all that clear, but it's pretty clear if you study it and you read what the, the, the great minds have said about those last two chapters. It is most likely not a description of heaven, but a description of the new Jerusalem. So that ends our study then of the doctrine of dispensations. And we did it in parts because it's so long, but, uh, I think it is very necessary uh, to understand the Bible. If you don't understand dispensations, then the Bible is a hodgepodge of contradictions. Uh, but it's the most important to understand each and every dispensation. All right, now let's dedicate the closing moments of this service to anyone who may be without Christ, <clears throat> without hope, and without eternal life. So with your head bowed and uh, your eyes closed, or however you do it, uh, go to the Lord and tell Him. Uh, I'm praying for the power of the Word because the Word is powerful. It's alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And my Word shall not return unto me void, but shall accomplish that which I please, and shall prosper in the thing whereunto I have sent it. So we're counting on that, Father, that Your Word will demonstrate its power. Power to save. And all that has to be done on the part of an unbeliever is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't have to uh, tell you he's sorry for his sins. He doesn't have to tell you that he'll never do it again. He doesn't have to jump through any other psychological hoops that some have placed upon unbelievers. No. He doesn't have to walk an aisle. He doesn't have to raise his hand. Uh, He simply has to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that can be done very simply. Why? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, since He came unto His own, and His own received Him not, the Scripture says, but all who do receive Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on His name. Why is that? Because it's so easy. Why? Because for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but it's all by grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And when then we have those three wonderful verses found in John chapter 3. John 3.16 For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. So just as that uh, old poor jailer said, What must I do to be saved? And the answer was given, very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Do that right now, my friend. Right where you are, whatever you might be doing. Because I'm about to close, and I'm going to give a benediction right after that moment of silence. That moment of silence.